The following podcast is brought to you by the Jonas Podcasting Network, found exclusively at wrestlingwithjonas.com. Welcome to the SWN Podcast. I am your host, as always, Billy. And on this edition, I am joined uh, by a veteran of the wrestling scene, of British wrestling. I'm joined by the governor, Carl Conroy. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, looking forward to being here. Um, I Yeah, it's all good. I've had my dinner. I've got my tartan slippers on. I've got my T-shirt on, my Hulk Hogan T-shirt, especially. I mean, this is practically like a night out for me these days, so... No, it's all good. And I definitely haven't spent the last 15 minutes unblocking a toilet. So it's all good. Um, that, that's, that's, that's the wonders of this particular episode. We don't have video. So I could, <laughs> I could be honest. I, I put on my branded T-shirt and really I didn't need to. I could, this could have been the edition. I just I just did, I could have called it the naked episode. Nobody would know. Only we oh, would know. I, I see my <laughs> reputation has preceded me. Um, so the first question, we'll just get the first question out of the way because then we can just actually speak about fun stuff. Uh, the first question is always the same. How did you get into pro wrestling? What was the moment that got you hooked? Well, I actually, uh, I was a little bit of a latecomer, actually, to wrestling. I didn't get into wrestling until I was about uh, 10 years old, maybe. I know a lot of people start watching when they're, you know, knee high to a, you know, whatever. But I was never a wrestling fan until that time. But luckily for me, my parents were wrestling fans back in the 80s. And taped a lot of the stuff that was on these obscure... I mean, we had one of the first cable systems when we lived in Kent. And to change between the channels, you actually... It was a switch on the wall, and you had to, like, switch it around to change between the different channels. And there was lots of obscure wrestling, if you like, being shown on those channels at the time. There was world-class. There was old NWA stuff, WWF superstars and challenge. And all of this different stuff. And luckily for me, a few years later, my parents actually taped a lot of that stuff. So I was bored one day and just looking for something to do, something to watch. Came across these Betamax videos. That's how old I am, um, giving away my age. Um, the uh, Yeah, came across these tapes and I'm looking for something to watch. Okay, this one, right. And there was this tape that was labelled WrestleMania. So I put it on and... It was the first WrestleMania, and from the second it started playing, pretty much, I was absolutely captivated by it. You know, that despite the cheesy presentation, I mean, these days, obviously, that looks very dated, but I sort of fell in love with that sort of cheesy kind of very, very 80s presentation, and that's something that sort of stayed with me. And from the, the first time that I started watching that, I was absolutely hooked, absolutely hooked. I just had to then devour as much wrestling didn't matter what it was I just had to devour as much wrestling as possible and I think I binge watched the first five Wrestlemanias within like a day or so it was um I, I just couldn't get enough from that moment on it was um, one of those things where you're just like how how have I went so long without watching this I need to yeah I need to catch up it, it totally <laughs> took over my life basically um pretty much everything else I was into got pushed to one side because wrestling came along um in terms of actually getting involved I started in 1996 
I met some people on a train coming home from a show. Uh, I went to a Hammerlock show in Sittingbourne in Kent. And on the train back up to London where I was staying, I got talking to some of the people that have been on the show, uh, Phil Powers, Alex Shane, and someone who would go on to become a very close friend of mine, Justin Richards. Uh, although Justin did completely blank me on that first meeting, which I constantly like to remind him of. Um, yeah, I got talking to them and that led to me becoming involved with Hammerlock. Um, and to begin with, I was actually, I was doing media studies at college and I got involved with them editing videos for them, uh, filming stuff and editing it for them. Um, and that kind of one thing led on to another. And I ended up making my debut in May of 1996 against the aforementioned Alex Shane at the Lee's Cliff Hall in Folkestone, uh, which is where quite a few people from Hammerlock had debuted. Um, and yeah, it, it all just sort of went from there, really. Um, so so I, what was your kind of background for, for getting involved? So before then, you said wrestling kind of pushed everything aside. Did you think that there was any chance you could do it in the UK? Because I know it was quite around about well, pre I don't know, 2006 or probably nobody thought anywhere could you could do anything and be a wrestler in the UK um so did you do like martial arts did you do football what was your kind of do you have a sport background before you attempted to to be a wrestler well this this will surprise absolutely nobody that's actually seen me wrestle but no I did not have any sporting background um I pretty much came to it you know, essentially very unprepared, I suppose, because I I didn't have that background. I, I didn't really have any interest in sport up until the time I discovered wrestling. I mean, after that, I, you know, discovered football and I got into that. But um, no, b before I actually got started with Hammerlock, I didn't actually, I mean, I always wanted to do it, um, but never really, I, I was never very sporty. And that did kind of transfer, you know, that did register that way when I started because I, when I started with Hammerlock, um, I had nothing. I, you, you, get, you get people that come in and are just absolute naturals and take to wrestling from the word go, basically. I was the complete opposite. I really had to learn what I was good at because I had zero natural wrestling ability when I started. So it was a case of, find out what you're good at. And I think that's something actually that a lot of people maybe never do. They never realize what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. But I mean, I'm someone that's always been able to put eyes on myself like that. Um, so yeah, I, I quickly found that I was good at getting heat basically. Um, and the wrestling sort of followed, you know, followed on from that basically. And I, I learned as I went. I mean, some places, uh, I mean, I don't know, like, I've never trained, so I don't know. This could be a very much a generalisation when I say it. But if you're getting trained by the same person constantly, if you're not, like, expanding your horizons and that, you'll only learn one way, and it'll be their way. So at least yeah. when, if you go to other places, Hammerlock, I'm assuming, had a couple of different trainers that would, would come in and out um, that would be able to teach you, like, give you another piece of this puzzle as you're well, going along. Um, but yeah. some places you don't get that at all. Well, that's something I've always advocated, um, especially later on when I ended up coaching people, uh, was go to as many different people as possible. 
you know, get all the, all the various different experience from different people, because they'll all be able to teach you something different, even if it's in some cases what not to do. Um, and the thing is, um, Hamlock, um, Andre Baker was the owner of Hamlock, but he didn't really do a lot of the coaching. Um, most of the coaching I would say was done by Justin, Justin Richards. My first training happened to be with Doug Williams, um, who also did some coaching down there. I mean, thankfully the fact that Doug, you know, Doug did that initial coaching with me doesn't seem to have stained his reputation in any way, but well, until I'm a bit admitting it now, but, um, no, it was, uh, it was very interesting training at Hammerlock because as well as learning the actual hold for hold professional wrestling, one of the first things you would do there is shoot wrestle. Um, combat sombo was um, what they called it. You know, it was the, the discipline, the particular discipline of fighting that Andre wanted people to, to learn and to do. And it was actually very, very useful. You know, it, um, things like that. Um, I mean, you talk about, you know, different backgrounds and people coming to wrestling from different backgrounds, sporting wise. And yeah, I mean, doing that really does help, just like doing something like amateur wrestling would would help a lot. And, you know, back in the day, almost everyone came in through that amateur background. I mean, I was, you know, a generation on from that, obviously. But, yeah, it was, it was really, really interesting. And you did get to learn from a few different people at Hammerlock. Uh, so, what was, so you said your debut was quite, quite shortly after that then. So... Did they just see that that uh, your wrestling may not have been quite up to what they needed to, but your character work was was enough to at least uh, carry you forward and, and get heat? Uh, what was it like your first match, and what do you remember your your thoughts on it? <laughs> well, I was actually a late standing. Um, I they were a man short basically, um, so having having done a little bit and having having had i think about an hour and a half or two hours you know drill basically in the ring before the show uh, by people like Doug and i know there are a couple of other people that helped me with that and i can't really remember who they were now but i know Doug was one of them um you know i i basically filled in for that that missing person and I only had a short match on that debut. Um, it was part of a winner stays on gauntlet style match. Um, and we, we set up a little bit beforehand where, you know, I would I would attack Alex before the match had started as he was helping his previous opponent back to the, the dressing room. You know, they'd done an injury finish. Um, so I, I sneak attacked him, put him into the post, got in the ring, got on the microphone and, you know, got got the heat and then a short match you know got some heat on him and then it didn't last long it was maybe three four minutes and then he he beat me with a ddt and and that was it really um I suppose yeah, one of those was, things if you only get nine or uh, nine minutes or so to prepare the, the, you kind of have the nerves i suppose so at least <laughs> if, you're, if you're given like i don't know if, if if you were if you're an anxious person when it comes to that but if you're given a, a week's notice then you're going to spend the next seven days going Oh, what could go wrong? What am I going to do? And then, but if you're given like an hour and a half, you're like, "Well, what's what's well, going to happen now?" 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was young and fearless, maybe young and stupid. I don't know, but um, yeah, it was it was one of them things where I think if given the same scenario now, I would probably be very nervous. But you know, it's it's one of them funny things. You know, you're you're so involved in living your life when you're younger that you don't tend to introspect and think about these things. It's just um, you just do it. So I mean, I know, I know for myself. I mean, I'm I'm 31 now, but when I go think back, when I was like I don't know 16 or that, I think I was jumping fences. I was um, doing all <laughs> these things. I'm I'm thinking now, going, I wouldn't do that. What if I roll my ankle when I come down? What if what if my my feet clips the top of the fence? I'm like, it's only it's only half my life all <laughs> ago that I was doing. I was quite happy to do all these things, and now I'm like, no, no, it's all right. I'll just keep my feet on the ground and stay safe <laughs> so so <laughs> you say you're young and fearless unfortunately when i was going through trying to find matches my my trusted source at cage match failed dramatically just terribly i think the, the earliest match they've got down is 2006 so yeah. that's a good chunk missing unless there's, it's a different name or they haven't i don't know I, that's usually my go-to when it comes to matches so from that onwards i've got quite a bit before then, nothing. So yeah, that for, sure. that first ten years, <laughs> we'll, we'll try and cover. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's a very different scene. I'm assuming back then. Uh, Absolutely. Six, yeah. I was I was six years old, so I wasn't there. I didn't see any of it. But what was it like? Was was it just a bit wild west? Was it what, what was what was the wrestling scene uh, you found when you started? Well, it's funny because at the time I started. Um, the wrestling business generally was on its ass, you know, to put it bluntly. Um, the British wrestling scene, especially, you know, had had, after it came off the TV at the end of 1988, there was a buffer period of like a few years where live attendance actually went up because, you know, it was the only way people could still see this stuff that they've been used to for so long. But, I mean, by the mid-90s, that had really, really dried up. That had gone away to the point where, you know, in 1995 especially, you know, there was just nothing. There was nothing going on, practically. Um, even Brian Dixon, who, you know, was the UK's biggest promoter, I mean, may even be today, I'm not sure. Um, but he cancelled pretty much all of his shows, you know, apart from Bristol... Croydon and Stoke um, and that was that was it you know there was there was very very little going on at the time um, and we were I mean those of us that started at that time we were essentially kind of in between eras if you like because you know that that period that I was talking about there had, had finished and you know it was sort of like you were waiting for something else to start or hoping that something else would start um, and it was it was very, very dead, for lack of a better term. So it did, um, as time went on, it did start to begin to pick up again. But it was it was very, very, very quiet, you know, in that period. And there was almost no wrestling scene at all left in Britain. I mean, was there a case that was what was your I mean, we'll speak about good stuff as well, but do you remember what your, like, your lowest attendance was when you were you were wrestling, going out there? Were you <laughs> able to get all the names of everyone when you went out? 
Well, there have been a few shows, but funnily enough, they they were more recent than that. Um, yeah, a few shows like that where there was a time, I'm trying to think of the year now, may have been 2005, may have been. Um, I worked for a promoter called Jerry Norton, who used to run some stuff in the Midlands and wherever else. Uh, this job was in somewhere near Derby. I forget the name of the place, but somewhere, somewhere near Chesterfield, actually. And I actually got paid more that night than they took on the door, which, uh, <laughs> you know, is, is, is a unique kind of honour, if you like. Um, I think there were nine people in there. Uh, yeah, there were nine people there in the end which two of which was Blondie Barrett and his wife, Wendy. So um, I don't know how many actually paid to come in. Um, oh, yeah, that was the show actually where, right, it was a really weird setup in this venue. And besides the fact that we were wrestling in an empty hall, practically, backstage, it was really, really interesting. Um, it was kind of like set up like an old sort of coaching inn. You know, you'd have old-fashioned doors and the the toilet doors, the locks were on the outside for some reason. And, yeah, it's, it's a very, very strange thing. I And I remember actually locking somebody in there. Um, I, I, and I left shortly afterwards, so I hope they got out okay. Um, I don't know for any reports of, you know, British wrestlers having gone missing around 2005, but... Um, yeah, that was a strange one. Um, there was a show of my own, actually, that was absolutely dreadful attendance-wise. It was only slightly above that, to be honest. Um, that was in Warminster in Wiltshire. And the reason that was so bad was I relied on somebody else to do the advertising for me. And that was the, <laughs> the one and only time I relied on somebody else to do the advertising so there have been instances like that where, you know, I think they've been the lowest crowds I've ever worked in front of. But no, back in the day, I mean, although it was dead, I mean, the crowds, to be honest, when I started at Hammerlock, weren't too bad, at least for that time period. Um, but everywhere else was pretty much dead. Um, did, you, did you ever, I mean, my first experience of live wrestling was... A tribute show in 2001 was there was there are you ever were you ever an undertaker um, <laughs> no <laughs> no I, I never i never worked for any of the the tribute promotions um i i did work for a, a lot of the different promoters in britain um i never worked for all-star uh never ever worked for all-star um i think i worked for most of the other major promoters though at one time or another like Oric Williams and Ricky Knight and I'm struggling to think now you know it's <laughs> I'm an old man you know help me out here like well when, when I was looking at when you, your your in-ring career ended it was the year I started watching British wrestling oh okay so, so I was looking at it going oh that's it's like one in one out <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's uh yeah, so when it comes to like promoters outside that time, I mean, I, I know everyone, I know just about all the promoters in Scotland just now by name, not by 
I don't actually speak to them. But uh, yeah, so outside of that, I'm, I would be I would be uh, lost without a paddle. I think if you if you started if you told me to name who who was running, whoever, <laughs> like no, I've heard of Oreg Williams though. Um, I think I think he's in. Uh, I think he's mentioned in William Regal's book. I think that seems to. Yeah, he probably mind. he probably is mentioned quite a bit in in Regal's book. Yeah, so yeah, I, I would say that this is when when you said you you're happy to be on. We were arranging it. I was thinking, oh, this is definitely outside of my my knowledge pool. So it was just like the <laughs> cage match for for ruining my research and <laughs> but, uh, So yeah, so that ten years anyway. So yeah, so I was picking up matches and again two thousand six. Well, I've got I've got one two thousand three, of course, but we'll speak about that in a sec. Uh, wild promotions then. So you're you're doing the wrestling. Um, it's the scene's quite. I say quite a little bit dead, and you, you, you're still getting to to do a bit of wrestling. What made you decide to start promoting as well? It's it's just something I always wanted to do, right from the time that I first got involved. Really, uh, I just wanted to sort of put a creative slant, you know, my creative slant on the wrestling. Sounds cow there. Um, I yeah, I, I I did enjoy promoting. I, I will say that I did enjoy promoting. There were obviously the uh, the times where heart attacks were almost on the cards, but um, yeah, it was it, it was good. It was it was nice to sort of be able to apply my own sort of creative license to to wrestling and the audio count like just before that um, so I, I, what i got was uh you started promoting you wanted to put your own creativity and i lost about a minute and then you enjoyed promoting that was the bit i got back so so <laughs> unfortunately it was probably the most important bit that we missed out there <laughs> so. I, I'm, I'm gonna pretend now that i said something really profound and philosophical so yeah, that's, uh, that's how damn audio, the, damn, damn audio. That's how we, we, we keep the dip in then. I'll just have to cut out like a tiny little bit of it, sliver. And then when you said, oh, this is something super important and philosophical and uh, we'll never know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so sounds like, as you said before, when, with the kind of um, advertising thing, um, you didn't want to put on anyone else. Were you really hands-on with your own promotion then? Were you oh. like... Right, yeah. I want all the creative. I'll do all the advertising. I'll organize all the posters, and uh, so how was how was that trying to balance that between that and and trying to actually do some wrestling <laughs> as well and having a life? Yeah, I mean, oh, I was very very hands on with the publicity side of things because that first experience, you know, that show in Warminster taught me that wasn't my first show, but. It's fair to say that my early shows weren't exactly brimming with people. Um, so when we started uh, to run the, mo- uh, the halls in Scotland, I actually became very, very hands-on because we started to get things down to a fine art in the end. Um, the Albert Halls in Stirling, which is where we promoted for uh, three, four years maybe, um we got advertising that down to a fine art in the end uh we knew exactly where to go with posters we knew 
you know, which newspapers, you know, we have regular contacts with the newspapers, competitions, all of that sort of stuff, write-ups and features and banners outside the hall. And what one thing we used to do, actually, um, which I don't know if a lot of people do, is we used to go to all of the, the little villages sort of surrounding wherever it was we were promoting, so within a, a 10-ish mile radius. And there might only be one shop in that little village, but everybody in the village goes to that shop, you know, so they're very good locations for getting posters out and probably more effective than trying to get posters into a busy city centre where there's so much else to catch the eye. And that's, uh, that, that's depending on whether you can even get posters into, you know, the shops in a city centre. No, I mean, well, absolutely. I, mean, I know for up here, it's not that difficult because there's that many closed shops now you can put posters, whatever you like. Because I, I have seen, I've seen uh, Mike Musso um, when, when they're running the Northern Tour up here for W3L. Uh, have, I've spotted them up the high street just, just tacking posters just on any closed closed shop window. Oh, and, and Mike, have Mike, 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 Mike. I mean, I could believe it. I was you're far away from home, just come up to Elgin <laughs> to, to put up some posters. But, I mean, it, it, the proof's in the pins, though, because our shows are always fairly well attended up here. So, you know, uh -huh. can't judge the process. Um, so, yeah, when, when, when you say you're, you're coming up here, and, of course, that would be the before Twitter, before Facebook, really, uh, before, well, would have been before Facebook, and any social media so it is all world word of mouth and and picking the right places for posters and mm -hmm. is there any kind of pushback you had I'm sure there's always a story of, of you going with a poster and they try and get free tickets off you is there any particular uh, stories that you remember from trying to get a poster in a place that's um, cringeworthy <laughs> well we, we always used to get the uh, the ones who looked looked rough as a badger's backside basically but as soon as you went in with a poster for something like wrestling it'd be oh no not for that you know and it's like okay you've got circus posters up you've got posters for this and that you know what what happened you know why are you so mad at wrestling but um not really i mean you you get the ones that ask oh you know what what is this maybe the ones that can't you know aren't so fluent in english uh, where communication becomes something of a problem. Um, and they, they look at the poster and it's like, what, what, what is, what is this? What is, what is, it's wrestling. It's like, what is, what, is? and you pretty much have to go through an entire history of wrestling, you know, with them to, and, and they still don't understand. It leaves them very dazed and confused looking and you're still not sure if the poster will actually go up or not, but um can't really think of any any specific instances where I had a few strange ones like that where we went into a Chinese takeaway the once and this was somewhere near Perth actually on the outskirts of Perth and at the time I I had a pic there was a picture of me on the poster with uh, my tag team partner at the time Dave who wrestled uh, under the name Invincible um and holding these these tag belts and the guy looked at the poster and like he, he looks down and he, he goes oh you champion and and uh, what and it's like um, no 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 my brother my brother <laughs> you know i had to pretend it was my brother instead of me but um 
Otherwise, I don't think we'd have ever got out of there. Um, but you get you get people that are interested as well, you know, and that's that can really tie up your time. Unfortunately, it's it's good that they're interested, but you know, it can be a case of you know, stay and have a pint, and we'll talk about this. Oh no, actually, I've got to get quite a few hundred of these out. So, you know, I'd, I'd love to have a pint with you, but time, you know, is getting on. I'm just closing, trying to close my curtains there because ice cream vans arrived. It's been a while since I've had an episode with the ice cream van in the background, so hopefully nobody can hear it. And I've just <laughs> and I've just mentioned it, which is going to make everyone just go, "Where is it? Where is the ice cream van?" Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so we did get a question. We've got a couple in from from Jim Keith actually, who who oh, good. for those listening uh, wrestled as James Midas. Um, I remember him wrestling as James Midas and Jambo. He he, he does ask about. Uh, I don't have the exact question from him because he, he sent it to me directly and not to the actual reply to the graphic, so I couldn't find it. But pretty much it was it was about the pitfalls of promoting shows 350 miles plus away from your uh-huh. home base of operations. And I think that they did put the word daft and and difficult. I was worried how daft or difficult was it promoting shows so far away from home. So, um, I mean, of course... Yes, you're, you're promoting up up here, up in the in north of Scotland, and hundreds of miles away from home. What what made you decide to try and make it more a touring company around the UK? Well, um, I did have a lot of connections in Scotland. That was the that was the main thing. Uh, I did live in Scotland prior to the time that I moved up in two thousand and five. I lived in, well, near Glasgow, actually, in East Kilbride for a little while in 2003, uh, when the the Scottish scene was really sort of just starting to spread its wings, so to speak. And that's the time, really, where I started to look into halls up there, because in my mind, I was going to be there long term. That didn't quite work out, but by that time I'd sort of made a foundation to start promoting in these different places and when I moved up again uh, in 2005 actually it was before I started to uh, before I moved up actually uh, slightly before anyway I, I started running places like Forfa, Arbroath, Dundee, Aberdeen, Montrose um, yeah um, and then when I moved up in 2005 it um, it became a lot easier, obviously. Um, yeah, the um, the idea was, I mean, at one time I was coming up to Scotland every weekend, even when I lived down here in Birmingham, where I am again now. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't really that big a stretch. Plus, you know, I got to have some very, very fun road trips along the way, um, traveling with certain people um so it, it was all good you know traveling that distance has never been an issue for me um the one thing you know that that did cause a problem occasionally was say if something went wrong in the lead up to a show and you are hundreds of miles away you know you i would have to call on certain people to go and rectify that problem rather than me dealing with it myself in person so that that's the only thing really that did cause that little bit of problem but no everything else was was pretty easy really um I've always been a very organized kind of person and 
I I found it very, very easy. I mean, there, there was a lot of hard work involved, but I, I did find it easy to organize all of that stuff and just um, just apply it, really. I, mean, I suppose when, when you're doing it as well, there's not this none of this uh, like silly politics or, or, oh, you can't run that town because I run that town kind of thing, oh, because yeah. by the time there wasn't that many promotions about. I mean, nowadays, inundated, I think... It was a while ago since I last counted, but there was like at one point eighteen different promotions in Scotland alone. Yeah, uh, that that ran. But I mean, I suppose when Wild was about, then you had some that toured about. I mean, towards the end, there would have been, of course, Mike with W3L, BCW, mm-hmm. um, but it wouldn't be a whole lot. It wouldn't have been like this this territory kind of thing. So you could just run up in Aberdeen and and what have you, and just do your show, and then and what and that without without too much bother you would think you're not going to have someone phoning up your venue going uh, oh no you can't run this or, or no, <laughs> I mean, problems the the only time that i can think of that somebody has tried to cause me problems like that uh was the aforementioned jerry norton who i worked on who i worked on a show for in chesterfield as i've mentioned before where there were nine people um jerry provided the ring for me at one of my shows one of my early shows actually in nottingham and after that i booked him for a number of other jobs um but for some reason he started phoning my venues and trying to you know say oh he hasn't got this license or he needs this license or he hasn't got that and i I did have all you know the licenses i needed but you know why why do that? So, and, and I found out it was him because the venue actually told me it was him. Um, so I, it might be somewhat childish, but I, I did, um, I, I provisionally booked a show. Uh, he was based somewhere in the East Midlands. I forget exactly where now. Somewhere maybe around Leicester or somewhere around there. Uh, I provisionally booked a show somewhere i even forget the name of the place now but it was right at the arse end of wales uh completely the the opposite side of wales a little sports center i I provisionally booked a date there because i knew that he would phone up and check whether the date had been booked you know when i booked him for the ring job so when he phoned up i booked his ring and you know asked him to do the job i knew he would phone up he phoned up they got oh yes you know we've got a, we've got a booking in for that date and all of this um there was no show um i i basically sent him to the arse end of wales uh, just for just for no and i just thought well you know that that serves you right for you know trying to cause trouble but um that was the uh, the, the last dealings i had with uh, with jerry norton for a, a good while um, but, quite good detective work then just, just tried to, to narrow down who it was and then just send them hundreds of miles away yeah <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought that that evened things out um, um, so I was, like I said we, we did eventually I did find some matches and you mentioned 2003 which is perfect because I have that written down um, you were in, end up in the ring with a, a very young uh, Drew Galloway <laughs> uh, of course and yeah, so he seemed to be a bit of a prodigy uh, at the time. And then, of course, he got signed by WWE uh, for his first run. Um, was was he a guy that when you when you got in the ring with him, you, did you know? Did you kind of see, oh, this guy's 
not bad. Or did you see was he round about the first time you he was wrestling? You going, right? This guy could could use some work. What, what was your thoughts first time getting the ring with Drew Galloway? To be honest, um, I mean, I I was I was doing the training or was one of the people doing the training at BCW when Drew started there, pretty much. Um, so I, I saw him quite early on in, in his career. And I mean, I always saw that, you know, he had potential. But if I'm being honest, I, I never saw in him, you know, the heights that he's reached now. You know, it's um, I mean, who could have, you know, um, looking at that sort of mild mannered 16 year old kid that, um, you know, that, that always, you know, lovely guy. You know, I, I've got to say that about him, you know, and he's and he's he's remained that way. You know, I have, I have been in touch with him pretty much the whole time he's been out there. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, you think, you know, you've got some potential, you know, you could, you could do, you could do well for yourself, but no, I mean, I, you know, being honest, I, I never saw him reaching those heights, you know, in those early days, but fair play to him, you know, he's, he's done fantastically for himself, you know, and really, you know, really proud of what he's, what he's done. Is there any part of you when you when you see him when he was WWE champion, of course, first ever British born? We like to say Scottish because you know he is Scottish. <laughs> uh, so first ever uh, WWE champion from from Scotland, and, and that and you can look back and go, I remember when though. I remember when he was a <laughs> the skinny kid, the skinny sixteen year old, and I was throwing him about like a a wet trackie, and here he is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean. Um, the- to be honest, there were there were a lot of them guys, you know, that that had potential in that class. Uh, Drew Drew was always a nice guy, as I say, um, and yeah, he he was one of them that um, I mean, he, he pretty much kept his head down and you know did his work and just got better and better and better. Um, if if I was able to help him in some small way along the way, then then great. But um, I'd certainly never try and take any credit for, you know, anything that he's achieved. And it's funny, actually, you know, he he had a leaving night at Barry Wolfgang's pub in Glasgow the first time he went over to the States in 2007. And, you know, we're, we're just chatting and everything. And he, he says, you know, thank you you know, for the, for the, you know, all the early training. I said, well, you know, if I've been able to help you in some small way, that's great. But I I would never, ever sort of, you know, try and take credit for anything that you have achieved or would go on to achieve. And don't let anybody else ever take credit for that. You've done all of this yourself with your hard work. And he has, you know, it's, it's fantastic for him. Um, I know there have been people that would try and claim, you know, credit for that but um no he's he's done it all himself and funnily enough actually before he went over there in 2007 he asked me to write him a reference and i've no idea from it's this has bugged me for however how long has it been 14 years 14 years now yeah um it's bugged me for that length of time i've never got around to asking him actually this is this is jumped my memory i'm going to ask him now um, he probably doesn't even remember, but I've always wondered if that actually ever got read by anybody or, you know, whether it just went straight in the bin, you know, or whatever. But, um, yeah, that was, that, that was an interesting thing. So you're saying you were, you were, you were there kind of when he started up then, um, is this, 
I hear about this post office, this back of the post office. Was was this was this your your was this the training area? This back of the post office. Well, um, the Jake the Snake Roberts. The the training school at BCW actually had several locations over its time. Well, over the time that I was there, anyway. Um, I think the first time I went along, they were training in. The John Wright Sports Centre, I think that's what it was called. John Wright Sports Centre in East Kilbride. And I think shortly after that, I think probably the next time, because at the time, you know, I was living down here. I would go up sort of odd weekends to, to help out with the coaching and stuff like that. And uh, I think the next time I went up, they had started at the post office. It was like a, a recreation room up, up above the post office, sorting office, basically. And it did have a number of other locations. There was a barn that they had the ring permanently put up in. It was a tiny barn. like it, The ring barely fit in there, basically. Um, somewhere out in Ayrshire, uh, somewhere out of the back of Kilmarnock somewhere. Um, and then they got this lock-up garage in Camberslang in Glasgow, which is where I think a lot of the training took place. I, I'm not sure how long they were at the other places, but yeah, that um, that post office recce room was was an interesting one. You know, it, um, it never seemed the most conducive of environments for you know professional wrestling training. I've, I've never seen this room, but it, keep, it keeps popping up in stories. Uh, like uh, I don't know if you'll to wrestling daft with Grado and and, and Rob Florence, but uh, this 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 post office seems to just just pop up every so often. And all I can think of is just like this dullest green room, tiny tiny office, like red mats, just the most basic of things. Like we see the if you see anything about the dungeon, uh, and the the heart dungeon where it's just like uh-huh. a wooden slatted room. With uh, with the green floor, that's it. That's all I imagine when when I think of this post office. To be honest, it pretty much was like that. Um, you know, there, were, there was nothing in the way of facilities. You know, it's it's not somewhere. All it had was these, you know, mat, mats on the floor, and um, that was pretty much your lot, really. Um, but in a sense, it was good because. I, I think people get spoiled nowadays when they, you know, they turn up for their first training session, essentially, and they're straight in the ring. Um, I always thought that you learn, you know, you learn the basics first and then you go into the ring. Um, I don't think that going into the ring straight off is necessarily a good thing because people kind of get ideas above their station then. Um, and also, if you learn to bump by bumping on mats on the floor, you're never, ever going to complain about a ring being stiff. You know, it's um, it's one of them things where I, I think too much too soon can, you know, can, can spoil a person, if you like. And say with the, I mean, there was a match, it was a couple of years ago now, but I remember it, it popping up on Twitter. Um, I think it was a Joe Coffey match, and right near the start, I want to say it was Joe Coffey Rampage Brown, but I could be totally making that up. But uh, the fir- in the first couple of minutes, the top rope snapped. So if if trainees, maybe nowadays, maybe, depending on which school you're at, that would probably them done. They wouldn't know what to do. But because these guys had come through a system where 
you would have learned, you would have earned your way into a ring. They could still wrestle and put on a, a thrilling match because they know how to work without ropes. Yeah. Um, but one of the funniest things I ever saw actually was at Hammerlock, uh, another instance of the top rope snapping and the two guys in the ring, and I won't name them, uh, they both went on to do very, very well for themselves. Um, they carried on trying to run the ropes in this match. And, like, they were basically sort of very gingerly sort of bouncing against the middle rope. And you know, it's like, it, it, it was just an absolute farce, basically. But um, no, um, that, that has happened to me as well. You know, the, uh, the, the top rope breaking. Um, thankfully, it was my opponent who was it, went into the ropes and it broke rather than me because I think I would have just basically ended up in a pile on the floor. Um, us, you know, <laughs> us first sort of head, you know, but uh, thankfully they were quite athletic and managed to land on their feet. So um, I don't think I would have been quite as lucky. I mean, those it's those things. I've I've never I've been fortunate enough not to witness it myself with my own eyes in, in a show. Um, thankfully, the rings have all kind of stayed up. I've seen some slats move, which has given me the fear watching when I see them. But thankfully, yeah. the team's very good at teams I've seen being very good at kind of getting things moved over. They go outside the ring to brawl, and everything uh-huh. gets moved back, and then they come back in, and it's all good. But uh, yeah, so. First, you would have learned to wrestle without without the ropes. So once once they were broken, it's not not a huge issue. Uh, but has there yeah. any been a moment in the match where something maybe not like that's happened, but something's happened where you've had to kind of just move everything on the fly? Um, I'm sure there probably are instances where that's happened to ha- had to happen, but I'm struggling off the top of my head to really think of anything. Um. There have been, you know, various instances where somebody's kind of messed up a spot or, you know, forgotten to do something and then you just have to kind of improvise. But um, really, no, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head where everything's had to be changed around on the fly. I I bet I'm, you know, really neglecting to mention something, you know, that as soon as we finish this interview, I'll think of it. But off the top of my head, you know, I'm, I'm struggling on that one. It'll be one of those things where, where you say there it's it's so lodged in the subconscious of your brain yeah. that that's the reason why it's not coming out. It's just like going, no, you don't want to speak about this. This is not <laughs> a, not something you want to speak about. Um, what, what about? Oh, I mean, of course, uh, Jamb. Of course, he he also mentioned. Well, he misremembered uh, getting thrown downstairs. Yes. So, how how did that come to be? I'm very curious how that was, <laughs> that all came about. Right. This this one actually has nothing to do with wrestling at all, technically. Um, what happened was I was up at the flat of a friend of mine, Alan Grogan, uh, for New Year. And I'd basically drunk. I wasn't really used to the Scottish New Year's quite so much. You know, I was used to you kind of you go out fairly early, you, you get you have a drink fairly early, you do the stroke of midnight, you might stay out for a little bit longer, but basically, you know, that's you. Um, so I arrived early, so to speak, you know, I got drunk a little bit too much too soon. And I was, I was quite out of it, but, but I wasn't quite as bad as Jambo, who was maybe 
maybe 16 at the time, um, 16, 17 kind of time. I was drinking JD and Coke and I was diluting it. I mean, it was pretty much, you know, like seven eighths Jack Daniels and a, a tiny splash of Coke in the top. But Jambo had necked, an, I think, an entire bottle of something, whether it be JD, whether it be something anyway. And he was absolutely passed out. You know, he was he was fast asleep. He was absolutely paralytic just passed out, completely passed out asleep. And we're heading out somewhere. We're at Alan's house. Uh, Alan lived on the, the top floor of a tenement building at the time. And we've, we're heading out somewhere. So we've had to phone Jambo's dad to come and get him because he's just completely unconscious, you know. And we're heading out. So we, we've got to... Before Jambo's dad can come and get him, we've actually got to get him from Alan's front room down the stairs of this tenement building and sort of out to the, the street where his dad can come along in the car and get him. But none of his limbs are moving at all. You know, he's he's completely passed out. So we're he, he's like jelly. And like we're we've got one arm. You know, I've got one of his arms over my shoulder alan's got one of his arms you know over the other shoulder and we're walking him literally walking him like you would you would walk a skeleton like out to alan's front door um because i mean we, and we had to keep hold of him because as soon as you, you let go at all you know he would just slump down and it'd be, it'd be like having this dead body you know um and we stop outside alan's front door you know we get to that point we stop outside the front door and in the process of walking out that far, my shoes kind of come halfway off my foot. So, and I, obviously, because we're walking with him, I can't stop to fix it, put it back on. So as we stop outside the front door at the top of this tenement landing to lock the door because we're going out, Alan has let go of Jambo. And he's either forgotten that he's in this state or he hasn't realised that I'm not in a position to be able to catch Jambo. So... He lets go of him. He just slumps forward onto me that's just, you know, trying to put my shoe back on and pretty much rides me like a toboggan down these, like, like these tenement steps. It's like all the way to the bottom. And, yeah, that was a new year I could have done without. Um, so I, I, I get up to my feet and I drag Jambo up to his feet. Like, um, and we carry on with him, you know, walking down these stairs, one either side of him, like a, you know, walking him like a skeleton. We get down to street level. And while, while we're standing with him, waiting for his dad to turn up, it's like, it's like the, the episode of Fools and Horses where they're trying to get rid of the blow up dolls. And, you know, they've gotten dressed up in these women's clothes so people don't realise that they're blow-up dolls. And we're standing with Jambo. We, we can't sit him down or anything because he just slumps straight forward. Like, um, we're, we're having to stand and hold him up. And there's people coming along the street, you know, and we go like, evening, all right? <laughs> it's like we've got this dead body with us. Like, it, and then Jambo's dad turns up in the car, face like absolute thunder, because he's had to be taken away from whatever he's doing. He comes out the car like rips his shirt off, like takes his shirt off, like groundskeeper Willie in the Simpsons, uh, grabs Jambo by his belt buckle. Like, no, sorry, the back of his belt, picks him up with one hand and slings him in the car and then just fucks off with him. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's what really happened. 
It's nothing to do with me throwing him down a set of stairs. <laughs> that sounds like um, sounds like it was not the first time that uh, his dad's had to do that. No, um, I, I would guess not. So, so pretty much, I said it's not wrestling related. It's more weekend of Bernies. Pretty much, yeah, and, and a lot of them weekends were, to be honest. <laughs> well, well, there we go. That's there's the whole story. So probably uh, Jam was going to be Jamie's going to be sitting there just going. Oh no, and that subconscious memory is going to be coming back to him. Yeah, Although it I hope, sounds I hope like it, does. it sounds like it won't. It sounds like I, it, it. No chance it will. <laughs> no, I, I hope it does. I, I hope he feels guilty about it for the rest of his life. If I had a Photoshop guy, I would I would uh, get get, get a, a Photoshop of him just riding you like a toboggan because that's a that's a <laughs> image, such a strong image to have. Yeah, this this is going to turn out into a speaking out special if we don't watch it. So. Um... <laughs> We'll probably uh, won't touch upon that entirely, but we'll probably um, kind of mention it a little bit, kind of thing, because I think just because of, of the time and all kind of stuff, you know, uh-huh. when you're doing your own podcast as well. But we'll get to that. Um, so the next kind of points of, of things I thought would be interesting to speak about would be 2006 when I'm seeing uh, you in the ring with with now household names in Scotland anyway, Jack Jester and and Red Lightning, but also Tracy Smothers. Yes. It's a fairly random name in, in all things, but he did he did like to, to do quite a few tours here. Um what was it like in the ring with Tracy Smothers particularly? That was that was good, good fun. Um and that's one of them things, you know. I mean it, it didn't hurt. I mean it's you know such a shame, you know, his passing what was it, about October last year, that sort of time? Something like that, yeah. It, was, it, it feels so recent, but of course yeah. these last two years have been Madness. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I was I was so sorry to hear about his passing last year. Um, I only spent a few weekends with him, um, including that weekend that we worked together for W3L. Uh, but in my experience, he was he was a great guy. Um, you know, so much fun to be around. And yeah, that that match. Uh, I'm surprised. I mean, Mike did fire me twice. Um, kind of in jest one of the times but uh, kind of not in jest one of the other times but um, I'm surprised he didn't find me that night to be honest because we were meant to go about 15-ish minutes 15 to 20 say I think in the end we ended up that there's a, a few bits of the the match missing on the tape but I think in the end we ended up going about 53 minutes um, I think approximately five minutes of which was actually wrestling. So that was a lot of fun. You know, we did, we did stupid things that, I mean, it, it's dreadful to watch back on, you know, on video, but on that night for that crowd, you know, it was, it was really, really good. You know, they were, they were into it the whole time and um, just doing stupid things. Like we'd, we'd stall for 10 minutes and then we'd finally go to lock up. And then I'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, in Britain, we wrestle in rounds and that's the end of round one. And then I'd go back over to the corner and like, <laughs> just stupid things like that. And then we had a dance off and all sorts of weird stuff like that. Um, but that was good fun, you know, and it didn't hurt my opinion of him that um, whenever we saw each other at shows after that, he would sort of praise me to the hilt to everyone that would listen. So, you know, that's, you know that didn't hurt my opinion of the guy. That's what I find so weird about these. I mean, Tracy Smothers, my only like 
experience watching him would have been maybe if I catch an old ECW show or uh-huh. I think he was on One Night Stand when WWE tried to to revive it. Um, but yeah, when I keep hearing all these stories, we're pretty much is like it's it's Tracy Smothers. That's pretty much the full stop afterwards. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's it. You don't need any more explanation. But um, nothing but good things that I've I've heard about him, and he's is no nonsense. But we'll just yeah, we'll just be oh, Tracy. No, he Smothers. was he, he was he was a great guy. You know, I've got nothing but good things to say about him. Certainly, nothing but good things. Um, so, like I say, you also end up in the ring with a very young Jack Jester, Red Lightning, of course, that uh, became kind of household names uh, in, I say, in Scotland, Scottish wrestling particularly. Uh, of course, Jack Jester's now in the Scots, so he's, he's doing a bit of acting himself. Uh, but again, was, was there any anyone that you're able to wrestle, like maybe just during that time that that's now uh, working everywhere that that you spotted and were like, yeah, yeah, he, I can see him going far. I can see them going far. Um, or, or is there anyone that you saw that you wrestled and thought they could go far, but just never ma- made that potential, never realised that potential? Hmm. Um, I enjoyed working with Andy, Red Lightning. Um, I I always found him good to work with because he could get in, you know, get the crowd into it, you know, and I always sort of reveled in working with someone that could do that. Um and we, you know, we had fun together. We we did some some silly stuff, you know, and it was like um, it, it was it was just good fun. Um, um, I really enjoyed working with Liam Thompson. Um, Liam and I had quite a few matches together. Um, I don't know how many times we worked together, but it was quite a few at one time. Um, yeah, he was he was another good guy. I mean, I I should say by the way, I'm very very out of touch with the modern wrestling scene generally um not just scotland but generally um so i i don't know you know with with promotions like icw i see that you know that they've they've done things and they've you know they've had a good amount of success but i i don't really know the ins and outs so i i, I don't know how heavily liam's you know featured in something like that for example so I, I don't know if I can say, you know, well, maybe, you know, he could have been used more. or You know, it's it's one of them things where that's that's my ignorance, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, Liam uh, was, was wrestling up until last year. I think possibly an injury occurred, but he was oh, okay. he was still, uh, well, he's, that was the obviously the story that we were, they were given on the show. I don't know if that's true or not, if he's just taking a break or what have you. But no, he, he, was, he did some stuff. If, if you are looking to pick up any Liam Thompson, Watches, you probably will enjoy his good housekeeper matches with uh, Wolfgang. That's oh, okay. from from the, from our, our oh. co- a brief our conversation here. That seems to be up your street. I would think. Yes, I think I may have seen parts of that. Uh, I think somebody may have linked um, that on Facebook or Twitter or or whatever else. Um, yeah, I think I may have seen bits of that. Is is that where they've got the kitchen sink? Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think I have seen bits of that. Uh, as, uh, in our brief conversation, I think that's probably your your uh, your a bit silly, but a bit a bit fun, entertaining, uh-huh. everything in between. That's probably the the. the <laughs> I mean, that's that's why I love. Well, I, I, wrestling's fine. I mean, we saying you had five minutes of actual wrestling with Tracy Smothers. That's probably that. That's the kind of match I would probably enjoy. I just, I just love a good story. I don't care if it's for one night or in the wrestling's only three moves. Just give me a story. I'll. I'll uh, you can you'll you'll reel me in 
quite quite easily that way. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, Liam Thompson, you mentioned, of course, you wrestled in the first Fear and Loathing back in 2006 against him, uh, which was in Mary Hill. Which... Oh, yes, yes. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough, I was talking to someone about that not long ago. Um yeah, that uh, that one, you know, from from humble beginnings, if you like, um, that that one was, you know, a very very disorganised, if you like. I don't know if necessarily it was disorganised on the part of Mark Dallas or one of them things where it's just chaotic, you know, um, not necessarily disorganised. That might be a, a bad word, but yeah, just one of them very chaotic things where we were actually providing the ring for that show. Um, and unfortunately, our ring was in need of repair at that time. But unfortunately, the booking just came along before we were able to do those repairs. So it wasn't ideal. And the ring that we had at the time was a planks ring. You know, it wasn't it wasn't boards. It was planks, which did make it a little bit more awkward sometimes to pack everything into the van. But on this particular occasion, also made it very awkward to get into the venue because we we had to that the the actual hall that we were wrestling in was on the first floor of the building and we had to load in at the bottom take the ring up this uh this flight of stairs which sort of you had to turn in the middle and trying to get these planks up you know and there's this display case this glass display case in the middle of the stairs you know in between the two sections and the amount of maneuvering we had to do not to hit this glass display case which had trophies and whatever else in and we were under pressure as well you know um you know there were people from the venue saying well watch the display case and all of those right you know but it just took hours and hours and hours to get the ring in and that meant that you know the show started late and you know we'd we'd not known about this beforehand so it was just one of them times where everything's just complete chaos. A wrestling show, that's what we call it. Um. Oh, I, mean, it, it, I mean, speaking of that, trying to get in, I've, I've went to some venues uh, in the past and um, the one Sue just said that once sprung to mind with the, with the twist was uh, it's in Aberdeen, it's called Rocks Hotel and United Pro Wrestling ran it. I didn't go to the show, but I went, I stayed at the hotel not long afterwards. And when you're saying there's this glass display case, all the when you go up the stairs, it's just glass with a metal barrier, with a metal like uh, handrail. Mm-hmm. And I, I must have bugged my wife when I when I went went to that hotel because I was looking at it going, how how they got this ring in here without breaking any of this? <laughs> she was like, shut up, we're here to have a nice weekend. I'm like, but look at it. There's so much glass. How have they got this ring in here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was like, I don't care. We're, we're, we're having a nice meal tonight. Just shop about this. <laughs> but, but how? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah I, I, any venue that has stairs, I, my, my first thought now is just how? how? Oh, there's a lift there. You couldn't get a ring in there. You couldn't get any part of a ring in there. No way. How? Well, there, was, there was a lift at that building um, where ICW was running the first show, but and we did manage to get some of the stuff in there, but it still took absolutely hours to get this other stuff, you know, up up the stairs and oh, into the plane. It was just mental. It was. Um, so I've got your last recorded. Oh, got, you retired in 20, 2012, so we'll 
we'll kind of fast forward to that and we'll, we'll say we'll maybe dip back as, and forth when we speak about the podcast. What made you ultimately decide to to stop Wild Promotions and ultimately decide to stop wrestling? Well, it, I, th- I think it was just time. Um, my, my, my view on wrestling has always been very traditional, if you like. And it was changing at that time. It had been changing for a number of years. And also a lot of the people that made it worthwhile for me, I mean, wrestling, unless you're, you know, permanent full-time and and I I was lucky enough to work full-time in wrestling for a couple of years, as well as working full-time when I did my tour in Canada a few years before that. So um, that, you know, that wrestling full-time does give you a different perspective on it. But unless you are, you know, totally full-time and earning a good wage, if you're a weekend warrior, which I was for the majority of my career, you have to enjoy it. Because otherwise, what's the point? You're never going to make a fortune doing it, you know, as a weekend warrior. In most cases, at least. And I found that the more the people that made it worthwhile for me kind of started falling away, the less I was getting out of it personally. Um, you know, a, a lot of my friends were were stopping at that time. And I there were a few times I'd end up in a dressing room with pretty much a load of complete strangers and nothing to talk about, nothing to joke about. You know, the, the people seemed to be changing. You know, it was it just wasn't as much fun anymore. So that kind of coincided as well with a time in my life where I was getting interested in something else, um, which sort of leads on to the career I do now. I work as a therapist. Um, I work as a hypnotherapist, in fact, and I was pretty much throwing myself headfirst into finding out more about that kind of stuff. So at the time that I finished with the wrestling, it was fortunate for me, actually, because I had something there ready and waiting to take its place. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, I did have a conversation. I know you said about mentioning the podcast. We, I did have a conversation about that with one of my guests, Spinner McKenzie, who, you know, we talked about the fact that when people finish in wrestling, there is quite often nothing there to replace that, you know, that aspect of your life that needs to service that exhibitionist side of yourself. Um, It's not like you can go and do that stuff in a normal job for the most part. You can't go into work as a bank teller and, you know, do all these crazy things, you know, and um, it's one of them things, you know, you, you do have to find some form of expression for that more exhibitionist side of yourself. But luckily, as I say, I had something ready and waiting to take up my attention when I left wrestling. Um, before we move on to the podcast bit, because that'll be the next kind of bit, and I'm, I'm checking the time, and we are we're rapidly uh, moving through the evening. Um, your tour to Canada then. So how did that come about? And, and was there anyone in particular that, that uh, you loved working with? Or was it just a... What was it like? Well, I mean, I I worked with the same person the entire time I was out there, um, which was Kurgan, who was formerly in the WWF as part of the Oddities group. 
uh, huge guy, you know, now a very successful actor. Um, was in Pacific Rim and various other things, you know. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And yeah, that, that all got set up. Um, myself and my friend Justin Richards went out there in February 2001 uh, to spend a month out there working for the Can-Am Wrestling Federation, which was based in Calgary and was run by two different promoters, uh, Steve Wilde and Vinnie Fever, who both had, you know, a history of, you know, being involved in various promotions in Canada. So that was, that was a completely unique experience. And I am going to be talking about that on like some upcoming episodes of the podcast. Um, it was very, very interesting, just not only for the different wrestling, but the different ways of life out there. Because a lot of the shows, although there were, there were normal town shows, a lot of the shows that we did were actually on First Nation Indian reservations, which was a completely unique experience to me, you know, seeing these different people and this different way of life. You know, it was just, it threw me for a loop. And I'm so glad that we had that experience of going out there rather than going out to work for, say, a, a normal promotion, if you like, because um, it was so, so interesting. And, yeah, just experiences that will sort of stay with us for the rest of our lives. Uh, as I say, I, I worked with Kurgan for the entire tour. Justin worked with various people, uh, including the Cuban assassin, the, the original Cuban assassin that had been wrestling for 40 years at that point and was 60 years old, still taking all these crazy bumps all over the place. Um, but, yeah, it was just such an incredible experience of not just that, but going over, uh, you know, I mean, now, now there are these programs, you know, like Ice Road Truckers and things where they show the winter roads, and we did that, you know, it was, it was fantastic. Um, we were putting our lives in our own hands, but, you know, it, it really was an incredible experience. I'll look forward to hearing about that in 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 your own podcast, which we'll, we'll move on to now and uh, give that a good old plug. Uh, so it was. So you started. Uh, is that is it? Shane Ritchie, the Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. Um, we don't need to explain the title because you do that in the first episode. So if anyone goes back and listen, you find that out in the first fifteen minutes why it's called that. So we won't we won't delve into that too much, but. Why did you decide to start the podcast? Was it to keep you that, not so much exhibitionist side, but at least keep your, your interest in and being able to tell these stories and, and, and keep your, not your name out there, but just keep the wrestling part of you kind of active? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it started, you know, essentially because we were in lockdown and there was nothing else to do basically, and to, to escape from the uh, the horrors of homeschooling, um, I needed a project. So uh, and back in the day, you know, when I was actually doing all these shows and, <clears throat> excuse me, doing all these shows and going on to, you know, all of these places, I would write blogs at the time. I'd keep notes and write blogs. And I always wanted to do something with that information, but I wasn't quite sure what. Uh, and then I, I saw, you know, like quite a few people had started podcasts. And I thought, well, 
you know, why not? Um, you know, there's, there's already loads of crap out there. There might as well be some more. So I'm doing a really good job of plugging it, aren't I? That's exactly um, how I started mine as well. It was just like, oh, well, there's nothing, there's nothing going on. Oh, we'll we'll try this, and then, and then here we are. This will be episode hundred and hundred hundred and six. Wow, I'm on I'm on seventeen. <laughs> Your, yours are like yours are like like anthologies of of three hour chats. Mine's are just an hour and a bit of nonsense <laughs> so <laughs> yours is a bit more informative than mine i'll, I'll say that for, for um yeah the the podcast itself i i sort of describe it as a look behind the scenes i mean you've already said like the wild west of independent wrestling uh we we do touch on some serious subjects sometimes but I do love to celebrate the ridiculous more than the sublime with it because, I mean, there's just so much mileage in the ridiculous situations that you find yourself in when you're involved in wrestling. And you, you do find yourself in a lot of those situations. So I, I just love, you know, love celebrating that ridiculousness of wrestling. Um, I will say it's not a podcast for the easily offended. Uh, or the, the maybe the, the the woke section of the community. Um, although there has been stuff that I've I have cut out in the past, you know, just um, just because it would make me look even more morally reprehensible than I do already. But um, no, it's um, you know I, I tell various stories and um, I have guests on. I mean, we I've already touched on, you know, Spinner McKenzie has been one of the guests that's got you know quite a lot of attention on the podcast and you know his his stories from you know back in the day are, are fantastic you know um but you know we've got we've had various guests on and you know I've, I've got a lot of good stuff coming up um I've already mentioned that myself and Justin Richards are you know I've already this is already recorded I've just got to get it out there in episodes uh, we sat down and really looked at that trip to Canada. Uh, we talked for, I think, almost nine hours <laughs> through, through the night. So, um, yeah, that, that'll, be, that'll be a really interesting one. Um, other upcoming guests, I've got um, Keith Myatt, uh, Doug Williams, uh, various other people. And a guy that, that refereed in Scotland for... for he really wasn't involved in wrestling for that long a period, really. Uh, a guy called Tony, uh, Tony Nadette was his his name, his wrestling name. Um, but he's got some absolutely fantastic stories to tell. And we, that'll be the next ones that I work on after the one that I'm doing at the moment, which, um, yeah, there's, there's some really, really good stuff to come. So I hope people, you know, <laughs> enjoy it. And nine, nine hours, I can't even imagine. I mean, when I've got episodes with Scotty Swift, there are two about two and a half, and I'm thinking, oh, that's that's probably quite a long time to speak to anyone. But nine hours <laughs> is, is uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, you said you're OCD, quite perfectionist when it comes to putting them out. Do, do you, how do you find a, a natural conclusion for an episode? Do you just kind of go right? We've kind of petered out at this moment. We've had dip. We cut it there. Do a little outro, and then. And that are because, like, like I said to you before, I hit record. I'm literally just going to take this episode 
chop the, the front off it, chop the tail off it, and then put it all out. Even with our wee audio issues near, near the start, I don't care, it's going out. Uh, <laughs> so how do you find, like, is that, is that probably the most uh, the difficult bit with the podcasting was is getting the editing down into a, a position where you're happy with it to at least go out for other people to listen to? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that is all on me, by the way, because I obsess over things that, in the grand scheme of things, I bet nobody would really give a monkey's about. You know, it's um, that that's all down to me. And I'm sure that I probably could have got out maybe double the amount of episodes I have if I didn't have that component to me. But unfortunately, I do. Um, in terms of finding, like with the longer ones, where I have to find, you know, a way to cap it, if you like, I find that that just happens. It's, it's it's quite lucky the way that happens is I just find that I get to that certain point and it just, it's there, you know, it, okay, that seems like a good point to finish that episode. So, no, perfect. And, for, you know, it just works out that way, you know, it, almost unerringly, it just happens that way. I've, it's It's quite rare that I've actually had to come to a point and say, all oh, right, where do I, you know, where do I cut that off and start the next one? It, it just happens, really. Never get to hour six and go, oh, I haven't <laughs> I needed to, to find a stopping point now. It's, it's, but no, so you've, you've kind of, you've lucked out so far. So far. That's oh, that's, that's the jinx now. The next episode, you I know, do, yeah. you'll, you'll speak forever and go, we didn't take a break once. There was no natural end point where we're, we're screwed. Nine hours it is. It's all out. Anchor is <laughs> going to get a the, okay, fully test Anchor's limits for how long they'll go and put up episodes for. Um, but yeah, so um, when when you found that when you were speaking to people, uh, jogging your own memory as well, was was it bringing up memories that you didn't even think of? Again, back <laughs> in that subconscious with all those uh, memories of shows, not matches not going right, that you've, you've just they've just pushed right to the back um, but yes. if you find these chats have just been like wow I forgot I did this I forgot I did that and I wish I forgot I did this I, I've i actually got incredible recall of some of this stuff but I bet there is almost as much that I've forgotten about completely and now and again well all the time actually when I'm doing other things or when I'm thinking about other things little things just pop into my head and I have to go on the computer and you know, write them down, otherwise they're lost again. Uh, I'm finding that happening more and more at the moment because I'm working on the podcast a lot at the moment. Um, but yeah, just stupid little things that, you know, you just think, how did I forget that? Um, but, you know, it's, um, yeah, I'm finding that happening more and more uh, that I'm remembering very strange things, actually. Um, and as I say, I do love to celebrate those little weird things that happen. Um, yeah, lots, lots and lots of them keep coming back at the moment. So, I mean, it's never a bad thing. You do, you do I mean, I've, I've even had episodes, and like I said, I've not been in this, I watch it. But you do you do get episodes where I'm listening back going, oh, I should have asked this follow-up. I should have, yeah. like, maybe maybe just brought up this story kind of thing. But, you know, that just, that just leaves room for sequels. That's, that's why... <laughs> That's what I think about it. So it's like that's fine. I can try and book, I can try and get them again. Uh, when it came to to getting people on, of course you've had Spinner McKenzie, uh, most recent one as of recordings with Tex Benedict. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had Mike Musso, 
I've got, I, I was going to say Dean A.S., but I know that I've said his name wrong. Uh, no. How, I said it right, oh my God. That was one of the things in my head going, no, you're going to say it wrong. Um, <laughs> how, how did you find it quite easy? Was everyone quite up for being on? Have you had anyone so far that's like, no, I'd, I'd rather not speak about anything about my wrestling time? Or have you had any pushback or has everyone been quite uh, chill for being on? For the most part, people have been quite interested, you know, they've been quite excited to actually, and I've actually had people reaching out to me to, you know, to come on as guests sort of thing, rather than me getting in touch with everybody else. I mean, to begin with, I did have to get in touch with everybody because, you know, it's completely new and people didn't know what the show was going to be. And it's funny, actually, when you, you know, when you find out, certain people listen to it you know it's um it's one of them funny things where you think oh okay i never thought you would have listened to that you know it's like um and also where you know some of the listenership comes from it's changed just recently but up to the last week or so a lot well probably about 25 percent of the listeners were in the states which just seems completely strange to me because i've always thought of it as being very sort of british in nature um you know from the characters to the humor to you know that sort of thing but yeah it's 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 funny to see where people are listening and who's listening but yeah the, the for the most part people have have been very interested in doing it and i i've also appeared on other people's podcasts as you know we've sort of done an exchange if you like um I appeared on Dean's podcast, for example, because WCW, where they go back and review various WCW events and things. Um, so there's, I think there's only been one person, you know, and I, I don't want to name them. Um, there's only been one person that said, well, no, you know, I'm not really interested. Um, but uh, no, mostly, you know, and that was quite recently um where i started reaching out to people again uh to you know for, for upcoming episodes kind of thing um but no people have been very interested for the most part yeah i mean right back at the start then you, you say you're doing media and stuff like that so if you find that that's um helped with with i mean i said you're you're uh perfectionist when it comes to putting out and that's down to yourself but have you found that you're able to use those skills again uh, to, oh yeah yeah definitely definitely uh my, my my time sitting doing video editing definitely helped when it came to editing the audio you know for the uh for the podcasts um but i mean i've i've worked on various little projects in between that time you know involving editing and involving using them skills so it's it's not something that's ever really gone away but yeah it, it did it did come in useful and still does come in useful and of course, you do have a regular feature of short stories yes. uh, about the now infamous John Short. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot of stories have already went out in episodes, and I'm sure you've got a back catalogue of ones to, to go out. But um, if you just want to repeat one that you've already told us, is there any particular John Short story that just pops into mind just now that you want to share? Oh, where to start? Um, I mean, John is... An absolute wonder. Um, frankly, most of that wonder is wondering how he's still alive for various reasons. Um, whether it be 
constantly stepping in front of moving vehicles, whether it be eating expired food, you know, that went out of date a week prior, that's been sat in his car boot for a week. Um, and it's all stuff like, we, we stopped at the garage, you know, on the way up to Scotland the one time, and we, that's, it's close to midnight, and all of these sandwiches are going out of date um, at midnight. So they've all been discounted down to 50p or something. We stop, we, might, we, we grab one each, um john comes back to the car with i think 13 of them which he's you know he's still eating five days later when we're on our way back um i've just been sat in his car boot the whole time fermenting away um but oh god where to start with john i mean oh yeah so that's a, that's a nice teaser for for <coughs> uh for for episode so we'll, we'll... We'll leave, we'll leave that. We'll leave that to to tempt folk into to go. Of course, it is all all in love. It's not. It's not something you're not. Oh, like, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, you're not uh, trying to disparage his good name because because he hasn't got a good he, name. Because <laughs> he's done it himself. It's fine. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, the one thing I will say about John is is he's probably the only person I know who could. Te- like he phoned me up to tell me this the one well, not specifically to tell me this but we happened to be talking and he said he'd just been to get his car MOT'd uh, got all the work done on it and everything you know passed everything's fine and then on the way back home from the MOT he crashes it into a skip and writes it off so that sums up yeah. is that, that, that sums up John that, that, is that, that pretty, pretty much, much it? sums up John um and I, I did tell a story in the first episode, actually, where one of John's great loves in life is Speedway. And other than wrestling, Speedway, circuses and various kinds of fudge. Um, and on the way to trying to find a Speedway track in Glasgow, John pretty much racially abused half of Glasgow in the process um, in trying to get directions. I mean, first of all, we stop and ask a wino for directions who's slumped on a wall um, in front of a garage, like with a bottle of Bucky on one side of him and what looked like a bag of glue on the other. Um, You know, seems like the perfect person to ask. Um, Then when we got halfway down the road and got lost again, he he starts to pull over, like he he spots a bunch of teenagers at the side of the road, you know, perfect people to ask again. (laughs) Um, He starts to pull over and he, he goes... Oh, I'll ask these people. Oh, no, wait, they're Pakistani. Like, <laughs> like pulls back into traffic, cuts up the, um, like, I have enough trouble understanding Glaswegian without Pakistani mixed in. Um, cuts back into traffic, cuts up the person behind him, gets a, a, a honk on the horn from the person behind him, uh, which he's completely oblivious as to the reason for. And then five seconds later, five, ten seconds later, we, we're still going down the same road. He, pull, he goes to pull over again and goes, I'll ask this woman. Pulls over again, goes, oh, she's Chinese, that's even worse. <laughs> Swerves back into traffic again, cuts up the same person again, gets beeped at again. It's like, oh, he's it's, it's, it's an absolute wonder of nature. <laughs> And, and and he is of a generation. Let's say that you know I mean, those mm. those statements there sort of confirm that. But he is he is of a generation where he'll say things that just are 
unintentionally absolutely hilarious at the time. So yeah, well, I'll leave that as, as again the teaser if you want to go <laughs> in and listen more. So we've got two questions that we ask everyone. Uh, they're they're stupid questions, ridiculous questions, but we yes, ask everyone. Yes, so yes, they are asked. natural. They are natural. Uh, what's your favourite dinosaur? Oh, uh, Yoshi from Mario Kart. I like when and if people don't pick actual dinosaurs. I like that little bit of imagination that goes with. No, it. in in our house we're we're very partial to Yoshi's. Fine. And the other question we ask everyone is, what would win in a fight, two sheep or one cow? Oh, let's see. Very um, serious podcast here. How big are the sheep? Sheep. Right. That's just the question. The, your your imagination can, can if you, if you think it's two giant sheep, they could take that cow. That's that's fine. I'm um, just the, the questions as it is: two sheep versus one cow. I've, I think I've seen that video actually. Uh, or that might have been something else. Um, was there a girl in a cup? No, uh, there, no. There, there may have been uh, two <laughs> two sheep, one cow. Was that no? Um, that that may be a different website. Um, let's see: uh, two sheep versus one cow. Um, Hmm. I am going. To, I was going to say I'm going to go with the cow, but that would be all. That would be wrong as well. Um, oh, I'm going to go with the cow purely because I've seen a cow advance on people, and it was quite intimidating. I think the sheep would get intimidated by the advancing cows. Cow, sorry. Cow. Love it. I, I love it when anyone puts thought into these because it's a, it's a stupid question. <laughs> Everyone, it's like there's different levels of people will just answer it straight away and just get past it, but other people will just go, hmm, and then give way too much thought into a ridiculous question. That's why I love it. <laughs> so, well, the, the, um, the, the, the sheep advancing wouldn't have the have quite the same menacing effect. I mean, maybe if they're in a pack, you know, but. No, two sheep advancing, you know, doesn't trump one cow, I don't think. Uh, I think the cow would look more menacing and therefore the sheep would be inclined to retreat. Love it. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're approaching, I mean, it's not, it's nowhere near your nine hours in the night um, levels of, <laughs> of recording. But uh, before we, we wrap up then, where can people find you on social media? Uh, where can people find your podcast as well? Well, I mean, the, uh, the, the podcast, um, we, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and whatever else. We've got a, a YouTube channel that hasn't got a lot of content on it yet, but I'm working on it. Um, you can find all of that through one central hub, if you like, which is the website for the podcast, and that's www.comroypod.vze.com. Uh, that has links to the social media pages you can download the episodes from there there is a, a rogues gallery on there of people that we've talked about which i am in the process of updating at the moment it's uh, it's not been updated for quite a few episodes but just to kind of put a face to some of the names that we talk about you know it's it's good as a little resource for that if you like wonderful that's great well great well thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me this evening no um, thank you well, hopefully we'll barely scratch the surface I'm sure but um, like I said I just recommend anyone just to go to listen to Is, is That Shane Ritchie uh, the, the Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman and you'll find out so much more about Carl Conroy which I've realised that as a Scotsman it's, it's your name we can't say 
We just can't say your name, uh, which is unfortunate. It's, it's, it's the accent. We could, it's the R. We try to roll the R's too much. Yeah, for, uh, for, for many years I lived in Scotland, and for many years I, I did have to change my name to Carol. You're Carol or Cal, which uh, either which is yeah. it's worse. But. E- either way, I'm open. <laughs> uh, perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. No, thank you. It's it's been a lot of fun.